1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. I'm super producer Jake Hughes sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is off on a fantastic family vacation this week, and we wish him safe travels and all the best. So you're stuck with me this week. (laughs) Ha ha ha, ain't you lucky? Anyway, we have got a jam-packed show today. First off, we're going to replay our interview with Josh Carter of Patriot Boot Camp to talk about how they're helping veterans transition easier. Then after that, we're going to be speaking to Mara K. Gondek. She is the program supervisor for transitioning from the USO of Metropolitan Washington, Baltimore area. And she's going to be talking about their project next step an upcoming seminar talking about franchising. Lots of cool stuff. And of course, because it is Tuesday, we'll be speaking with Justin Brown of Hill Vets to find out the latest and greatest going on on Capitol Hill that concerns veterans. And before we get to any of that, I'm going to remind you once again, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, check out the website, connectingvets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran and military-related. You can find a whole bunch of really cool stories on ConnectingVets.com. We have a whole bunch of stories up there, brand new, every day. And to make sure you get the latest and greatest, follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. You'll know exactly when things pop off because we are staying on top of the veteran community because we are the veteran community. We are a dedicated staff of veterans bringing you the latest and greatest of things going on, telling you news, stories, and reminiscing on the veteran experience. So we stay on top of it because it helps you, which helps us. It's the whole big circle of life thing I keep talking about. So lots of cool stuff going on. Let's, talk, let's see what's going on on ConnectingVets.com. Here's some good news from our own Matt Saintsing the House nixes proposed Tricare cost increase for veterans. Yay! Buried in the annual defense authorization bill was a provision that would have suddenly increased Tricare costs for nearly a million military retirees. But the House came to the rescue and squashed it. The proposal would have risen annual costs to the tune of a few hundred, hundreds of dollars a year for retirees who use Tricare Select. Retirees who do not live close to a military hospital must use the TRICARE Select Program. The healthcare plan was intended to help retirees and family members by grandfathering them into newer plans or having lower fees. But while they were briefly safe from burgeoning enrollment fees, the out-of-pocket costs were set at a much higher rate than those who joined TRICARE after the new year. In other words, those who enrolled in TRICARE were told they would have they would have been expected to pay one price not only to have the costs rise dramatically if the bill became law thankfully the house of representatives removed that presi- that provision after fervent lobbying by military and veteran groups the congressional budget office office or cbo an arm of congress that provides economic and budgetary advice to lawmakers estimated that out-of-pocket costs would skyrocket from $1,645 to more than $2,700 annually for family coverage and nearly double from $570 to $1,160 for individual coverage. See, these are the kind of things we have to keep an eye on because that's how politics work, man. They never come out and say, this bill is called the Raise Tricare Rates for Retirees Bill. No, no, no. It's something innocuous, like a military appropriations bill, defense authorization bill. That sounds, oh, that's cool. We can deal with that. And then stuck in the middle in little legalese, the stuff that could affect you. But we stay on top of it. We look at that stuff. Why? Because we care. And because I'm a retiree as well, so that would affect me too. So, of course, I'm keeping a very close eye on it. (laughs) Okay, here's a story by our our own Phil Briggs, a headline that should surprise absolutely nobody. Survey says Marines are binge drinkers that have a lot of sex. Gee, I wonder how you figured that one out. Marines are most likely to binge drink, smoke, and have risky sex. That's according to a RAND Corporation research study that was conducted across the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and, of course, even the Coast Guard. Researchers spent two years looking through 17,000 surveys where service members were asked about their drug and alcohol use and sexual behavior. The report defines, quote, binge drinking as having four to five drinks during a single sitting, heavy drinking as binge drinking five or more times a month, and any usage greater is hazardous drinking or behavior which is known as alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. Over 40% of Marines surveyed reported their drinking habits met criteria for hazardous. In an interview with San Diego Union, Union Tribune, Dr. Sarah Meadows, a senior sociologist at RAND, explained the study is useful for the Department of Defense to make policy decisions But people should be careful when drawing conclusions about the service branches. We are not trying to blame anyone for this, but the Marine Corps does tend to stand out, she says. Each of the services has their own culture. The study sounds alarming, but Meadows indicated that the numbers, when considering the Marine Corps demographics, were relative to non-service members. Compared to young men on college campuses, it's pretty similar, she said. At that, at that glimpse into the world of beer chugging, shot pounding young men, may be the most alarming part of the study. Uh, as in life, the study covers both alcohol and sex, and the Marines have some high numbers in sexual behavior category as well. Research data shows that 24.3 percent of Marines surveyed had multiple sex partners and 40.2% had sex with new partners without a condom. Come on Marines. Seriously. It's an every safety briefing. Ugh. The study <laughs> The study also collected data about participants' eating and sleeping habits and their diets and exercise. The study summary revealed some even stronger stats including One in 12 service members experienced one or more serious consequences, examples of I hit my spouse or significant other after having too much to drink from drinking in the past year. Among active duty service members, 68.2% perceived military culture as supportive of drinking and 42.4% indicated that their supervisor does not discourage alcohol use. These perceptions were more common among younger and junior enlisted personnel who are the most likely to binge drink. Now, look, we've all lived in the barracks. If you've been an enlisted military member, you have most likely at some point lived in the barracks. So we all know how rowdy things can get over on a Friday night or a Saturday night. I mean, if you've pulled CQ as much as I have, that's charge of quarters, being in charge of the barracks after dark, You've seen some stuff. I've seen some some hilarious and tragic stuff in my time, in my 13 years in the Army. And so stuff like this doesn't really surprise me. I mean, it's more prevalent to my mind, and this is just me speaking from my experiences, it's more prevalent in combat arms because the two places where I noticed it most was when I was at... Uh, Fort Hood, Texas with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment that's tankers and Cav Scouts and then when I was stationed at Fort Meyer in Virginia and that was mostly infantry. Now I've never seen anything like completely bad but I've seen some bad stuff. Like I've seen soldiers passed out in the hallway. I've seen uh, ladies of the night I believe is the professional term. Uh in the barracks wandering around and I've had to kick them out. And one time I even had to call the MPs to get her out because she was being belligerent because I believe she was on some sort of substance, but that's neither here nor there. But this kind of talk, honestly, it's a little unsettling because especially the part where it says that military culture is supportive of drinking. And because we all hear the, cert, you know, the safety briefings, and this first sergeant will usually say something along the lines of, look, I can't stop you from drinking, so just do it responsibly, which really the advice should be don't drink because, or don't drink to excess. Because, I mean, I'll admit I have a couple of cocktails every now and then, like maybe once or twice a week at the evening times, I'll have a cocktail or two to sort of help me unwind and relax from the day. But getting stumbling, bumbling drunk multiple times a week is something completely different. And this just goes to show that I guess the Marines are worse at it, which, I mean, okay, you look at stereotypes and it doesn't, it's not surprising because the stereotype of Marine, of young Marines being alcoholics and having random sex is, you know, it's unfortunate, but they they say there's often some truth in, uh, in myth or in stereotypes, so... You never know. All I can really say is, Marines, control your younger Marines and don't let them drink to excess. All right, let's talk about something a little more fun or at least a little more conceptually fun. This is coming from the Military Times. Space Force, Space Corps, Space Guard, Space Command. Whatever form it might take, do we really need it? And I just want to say the picture on the story is perfect because it's a it's an ACU patch like you would put on your sleeve, but it says Space Shuttle Door Gunner. And I just I find that very funny. Let's see. Does the United States need a Space Force? How about a Space Corps? Maybe a Space Guard? President Donald Trump recently repeated his call for a Space Force, a separate and new military branch, albeit one that would be much smaller in size than the current dominant forces, such as the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. Even smaller than the Coast Guard. Wow! I kid you, Coasties, I love you. You stop a lot of cocaine. (laughs) In this area, Congress has the power on whether to create such a force. As of the most recent version of the National Defense Authorization Act, the legislative body... has has tasked the Pentagon with creating a subordinate unified command to cover space that falls under the U.S. Strategic Command. But a Pentagon report due out next month will provide a closer look at the feasibility and perhaps need or lack thereof to create a separate space force. A Brookings Institute event held this week featured four experts in space policy, asking them the pros and cons of creating a new military ranch focused on space. Three out of the four roundly dismissed the idea, while simultaneously stating that there needs to be a focus on space for training, planning, policy, and a host of other areas, just not with a new competing military service former Secretary of the Air Force Deborah Lee James said she doesn't see the need for a new military service and wondered what problem the president is trying to solve by creating such a force creating a space force would create problems of its own including a lack of money devoted to space a slow space equipment acquisition pace a lack of focus on the people who are experts in space operations and the need for a war fighting focus with space all four of these problems will be better served in other ways, uh, James said. Money focused on space increased by $5.5 billion during her three-year tenure as Air Force Secretary, and another $7 billion will be added atop that increase in last year's budget, she said. Speeding up acquisitions is a need across services and programs. Creating a new service would only add to the bureaucracy and cre- and cause more complexity competition for resources and manpower she said and the defense officer personnel management act is a better option for both space focused personnel and other areas she said lastly war fighting. simply put the former secretary noted that service branches don't handle war fighting; they take care of the manning training and equipping of the force for the individual combatant commands to then conduct war fighting in their respective regions And that is exactly what Congress is about to do if it passes the NDAA in its current form. The creation of a subordinate unified command for space under STRATCOM aims to solve that problem. That, of course, doesn't mean that a potential space force or something similar to it isn't in the offing. The so-called Shanahan Report, being created under the authority of Deputy Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan, is due out next month. Panel members at Brookings noted that the report was nearly finished prior to Trump's mid-July comments that he wanted a Space Force, which caused a major rewrite to be conducted. Even before the report and its details are made public, there's already support in Congress, specifically from Representative James Cooper, Democrat of Tennessee, and Mike Rogers, Republican of Alabama, who originally introduced legislation last year to create the Space Force. Rogers is expected to introduce Space Force legislation in the fiscal year 2020 budget early next year, meaning the true debate will happen next spring. Though he's skeptical of that a space force is the answer, Brian Whedon, director of programming of program planning for the Secure World Foundation, a nonprofit focused on space sustainability said the time is ripe for a more comprehensive focus on space due to competing interests that are crowding into the arena. Whedon noted the rise of non-traditional state and commercial entities now vying for a place in space, alongside the palpable threats from near-peer adversaries such as China and Russia, using both anti-satellite technology in space and terrestrially. That host of competing concerns would only further be muddled as the U.N.-U.S. response slowed, backed by the creation of a whole new military branch and all the bureaucratic minutiae that such an undertaking requires, he says. Frank Rose, a Brookings senior fellow on foreign policy, worked on space security issues in former President Barack Obama's administration. He also sees a space force as a needless waste of time. But, more importantly, Rose said that strictly military focus of such, of such a move misses the larger point that diplomacy and other factors, not just military, will have to play a part in how a host of nations use space, including security. It's very clear that there was almost no consultation whatsoever with the Department of Defense, Rose said. The decision was made on the fly. We cannot make serious national security decisions on the fly. The final final panelist, Steve Jacques, managing partner of Velos LLC, a consulting and engineering services firm with a space focus and a retired Air Force officer, was the lone supporter of a space force. A focal point is needed, Jacques said. Citing what he termed past failures to to have a cohesive approach to space security, Jacques called for a new, focused, empowered, and properly resourced space corps, force, or agency within the national security structure. That form of a potential force became the subject of commentary as well. By all measures, a new space force would fall at at or less than 40,000 personnel, making it tied for the Coast Guard for size and competing with much larger forces such as the Army or Air Force for resources and attention. All agreed that would present hurdles for the fledgling entity to gain a voice in a crowded military landscape. Creating a space force won't reduce those tribes, James said. It's too small and will be lost in the shuffle. It could also draw away from the integration and jointness of multi-service operations that have evolved over time, some said. Whedon, a former Air Force officer, warned that if separated, a space force could easily drift from its support mission to other commands doing, quote, space stuff for space reasons, which diverges from how space had been used as a dominant domain of warfare to date. Space capabilities provide capabilities, services, data used for military operations on Earth, Whedon said. So it's a lot of, um, I mean, well, what can you really say? I personally find the idea of a space force kind of silly. I mean, it, it, it's nothing we need now. We're not going to have people fighting in space for a long time. Right now, the Air Force can handle a lot of space stuff, once we have NASA, I mean, do we really need a separate branch of the military? I mean, I'm not ragging on Trump. Well, not too hard anyway, but do we really need a separate, a specific force just to deal with space stuff? I mean, I don't think we're at that level of technology yet, but that's just me. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. Here's a more uplifting story. From Marine to role model, wounded warrior strikes a pose to benefit fellow veterans. It was June 2012 when the CH-53D helicopter that Marine door gunner and airframe mechanic Sergeant Kirstie Ennis was flying in when it went down in Afghanistan's Helmand Province. The 21-year-old was on her second Afghanistan deployment. She suffered trauma, especially to her brain, spine, neck, shoulder, face, and left leg, which, after some 40 surgeries, was amputated below the knee three years later. After a month, a month after that, it was amputated above the knee. This is the first thing I thought about wasn't, "Am I going to be able to, to run again?" It was, "Can I wear a dress?" And it's told military times. "Am I going to be able to wear heels? Are people going to look at me differently? Am I still going to be attractive?" It was really that self-esteem stuff that got to me. It wasn't until a calendar photo shoot in 2018, six years after the accident, that she put on high heels again for the first time, a tear-filled event that she describes as highly emotional and special. When I was 21 and I got hurt over Afghanistan, I didn't have that role model, that injured woman role model in my life, Ennis says. I was hoping that other injured women veterans or other amputees or whoever would see it and would still want to embrace what it means to be feminine. The shoot was for the 13th Pin-ups for Vets calendar. Ennis said Ennis was the first amputee to pose for the publication, which was founded in 2006 by Gina, L, Gina Elise as a way to honor her grandfather's World War II service. Proceeds of the calendar go to veterans hospitals which includes some of the facilities at which Ennis had been and is being treated at, she said. It really is about paying it forward and hoping to be a role model for someone else. That doesn't mean she doesn't get sometimes struggle with self-confidence, despite nearly 87,000 Instagram followers after becoming the first veteran to grace not only the pages of the cover of ESPN ESPN, magazine's revealing body issue, wearing nothing more than a prosthetic leg and rock-climbing shoes. Ennis is what she calls one of the lucky ones. In other words, she's the daughter of two Marines. One of her earliest memories involves going to her mother's boot camp graduation. My Barbie dolls didn't wear ball gowns, they wore dress blues, she said. Ennis graduated high school early, got a community college degree, and joined the Marine Corps at age 17. She says she joined to serve people and, quote, protect those who can't protect themselves. 20 years was the goal. After her accident, she had to find a way to continue service. Though she hasn't always been an athlete, she's always been fiercely competitive. And has turned to extreme sports to raise money for vulnerable individuals and to inspire those to live up to their potential. I like to think that this is my way of still taking care of people, she said. Well, God bless you, Sergeant Ennis. I think you're a fantastic woman. You're a fantastic role model. And keep up the great work. You are, if you did not know by now, listening to the morning briefing for Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. Purdue. Super- Super producer, I cannot speak today. Super producer, Jake Hughes, sitting in the driver's seat. Host Eric Dame, out on vacation. We'll see him next week. Make sure you stick around, because next up, we're going to play our interview with Josh Carter from Patriot Boot Camp. After that, we're going to have a talk with Maura Gondek from the USO of Metropolitan Washington, Baltimore area about their Project Next Step seminar coming up this week. Don't miss that. And finally, of course, we'll be talking speaking with Justin Brown of Hill Vets. So make sure you stick around. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be very informative. And make sure you check out the website, connectingvets.com, your one-stop shop for all things villain, veteran and military-related. And make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us, get the latest and greatest information, know exactly when things pop off. And while you're at it, go ahead and follow me on Twitter. I am at JakeTheArmyGuy. So you can see what kind of stuff I post. I'll tell you, it's mainly nerdy stuff. So if you're a nerd, like a D&D or cartoon nerd like I am, check it out. You'll have fun. Anyway, this is the morning briefing. We shall return right after this.
0: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets.
1: Welcome back to the morning briefing for Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. Super producer JQ is here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame decided, screw you guys, I'm not hanging out with you, and he went off on vacation, so he's doing his thing. And of course, we wish him safe travels, and we wish he has a happy and refreshing vacation so he can come back here and get back to work like a good person. Anyway, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran and military related, and make sure you follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us, you'll get the latest and greatest happenings going on in the veteran community, and you'll know exactly when things pop up because we stay on top of that stuff. Because everyone here at ConnectingVets.com knows what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time. Except for Kayla Jackson, she's actually still in the National Guard, so she actually takes it off and then puts it back on at regular intervals. But uh, you you understand what I'm trying to say. So calm down. Anyway, it's Tuesday, which means we have to talk... I have to talk to someone who, uh, I'm just kidding, is a good friend of the show, great guy, Justin Brown of Hill Vets. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. Good to be here. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking We I got a lot of Facebook Live going here. So oh, ooh. Say hello. All right. So we got a lot of stuff to talk about. But first, I want to know
2: what happened last week. Were you okay? I mean, you were sick? Yeah, I wasn't feeling too great. So, um, and had just flown back from, uh, it was actually in Kansas City for the VFW convention. Uh, so was was a great event. A lot of veterans coming from all across the nation to, you know, the center of our country, right? Kansas City. And, um, you know, we had the president come out there and that ended up being uh, quasi controversial yeah. uh, because of a number of statements he made uh, uh, going after the press there. I guess a number of the veterans didn't really appreciate that. Certainly the VFW didn't appreciate it because they feel like, you know, those people were people that they'd invited uh, you know so it ended up being a very very interesting uh, overall experience but uh, you know it, it's always great to get out uh, I'm a VFW guy uh, you know numerous generations of my family have been involved in the VFW uh, I actually ran a VFW post in Salt Lake City Utah a lot of folks really? don't know that about me and um, uh, originally, one of my, my, my first, you know, dream job here in Washington, D.C. was I was the first post-9-11 lobbyist for the VFW. So uh, actually, have a lot of experience with the organization. It was good to to be back, good to to see a number of the folks from all across the country who I'd, I'd known for a number of years, but hadn't seen in a while. That's really cool. Okay, yeah.
1: so let's let's get down to business. Long about story you. short,
2: a lot of people, a lot of planes, and, you know, flew back in the day before I was supposed to be here yeah. super late, wasn't feeling too hot. Cut that so. concrete. That's it. You got it.
1: All right, so let's talk about some of the things going on. Uh, One of the big news things going on here is uh, newly appointed Secretary of the VA, Robert Wilkie, intends to reassign several high-ranking political appointees at the center of the agency's ongoing moral crisis. Now, I've read about this, and one of the other headlines I saw that was probably a little more sensational talked about him reassigning or firing Trump loyalists. So exactly,
2: what does this all mean for the VA right now? Yeah, absolutely. And and I joke, it's the red wedding part two, right? Because <laughs> we, we, we've already been through one iteration of this, and that was with, uh, you know, acting secretary uh, Peter Orourke uh, essentially utilizing you know a, a recent law that was passed and giving the VA broader authority to release VA employees, and it was seeming. or or some implied that uh, VA uh, acting secretary Peter O'Rourke was using that to his advantage to get rid of people who were maybe not uh, Trump loyalists or who had expressed uh, differing political opinions. Uh, There were a number of what I would call it minimum controversial firings. um, And and that really drew some ire, I think from uh, the United States Senate and the house of representatives uh, to some degree on, on probably both sides, but certainly amongst Democrats. Um I think uh, you know, now Secretary Wilkie saw that this was, you know, probably not the most popular approach um in terms of, you know, it seems pretty clear that there was a policy of attempting to clear house uh before he came into this role. Uh and and now you have a situation whereby uh you know Secretary Wilkie is coming into a position. He's got to try to garner, I think, some quick wins and goodwill. And, you know, this is one way to be perceived as trying to do the right thing in terms of moving some some politicals around who, you know, not only probably caused a lot of challenges for Dr. David Shulkin, the previous secretary, in in terms of what happened there, um, but also in terms of, you know, Congress, uh, the veteran service organizations and how they view the VA right now, Um, you know, but at the end of the day, it's it's all it's all starting to get really crazy. I mean, we're we're just seeing turnover and turnover and just this churn. Um, you know, and I hate to use the Game of Thrones analogies here, but it's like, you know we had the Shulkanites and they got crushed and you know now, now, now we got the O'Rourkies and you know they're all getting hit by the the Wilkinites, you know so um, it, you make
1: it sound so dramatic?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of is, right? I mean, if you were at VA, I mean, uh, you know, I think the reality—if if you're on the—you know—if if you're in VA Central Office right now, times are tense, and times have been really tense. Uh, you know, you 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 probably don't know exactly where you you know sit or stand, and and the sad part about this whole situation is is that is that it's veterans who are getting hurt. Uh, you know, it's 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 a lack of leadership at the top of the VA you know, that, that that has been unable to, you know, establish itself and actually get real work done. Because if all we're talking about is who's standing where, then nothing's getting done. And and that's that's the reality.
1: Okay. So here's my take on it, because the big fight and the big thing between Trump and other people and other people and other people has been privatization. Do you see when you look at what O'Rourke did and what Wilkie is doing, does privatization or opinions on privatization fall into anywhere in there?
2: Well, it's certainly an issue that he is absolutely going to have to address in some capacity. Uh, you know, the, I think the VSOs have made it pretty clear as to where they they, they, they want to stand. Um, you know, I think the, the needle keeps moving in that regard, uh, but... You know, and it's also I think going to be interesting to see you know ultimately where the president kind of sides in in terms of this battle. I think Secretary Wilkie was really smart to utilize his time on Air Force One as he flew to Kansas City for the VFW National Convention uh, to what apparently be you know make the ask that hey uh, you know I want to bring in my own leadership team and uh, you know I need your support to do that. I think that that gave him the. You know the power, if you will, to to make some of these changes. You know and and kind of go through red Wed- wedding too, if you will. <laughs> uh, you know and, and and bring in the Wilkinites and 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 you know uh, establish his own leadership team. Now the question is going to be, uh, you know, how much uh, he is capable of maintaining and solidifying his own agenda in conjunction with the president, and 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 to be in a place where you know the president is happy. But also that you know Wilkie is in a place where he can you know work with the veteran service organizations in a way that it doesn't appear that he's simply trying to march uh, towards uh, you know various forms of further privatization of the VA uh, because the reality of the situation is right now that's that's the perception um, you know and 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 a lot of the the legislative items that have been proposed a lot of the administrative. Um, uh, proposals all seem to be pushing in that direction, uh, which you know I think uh, many of the veteran service organizations collectively, you know, really want to see a reinvestment in in terms of the Department of Veterans Affairs. They want to see you know these these thousands and thousands of vacancies at the VAs across the country filled. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of issues at the VA, but a, a lot of them right now appear to be uh, self inflicted wounds. Uh, you know, and and just pushing all this care and all this money into the private sector really isn't the best solution for veterans.
1: Okay. I saw a lot of cool stuff. Well, it, you make it sound cool with the whole Game
2: of Thrones thing, which sure.
1: I had to admit I've never. I actually don't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs>
2: I've seen a couple episodes and never really grabbed me. Yeah. But. Well, long story short, the Red Wedding is you know where you're you're watching and and all of a sudden all the main characters are just decimated and you're just kind of you know standing there with your mouth wide open like what just happened. Um, okay. You know so. <laughs> For all you listeners out there that that don't understand what that is, and, and again, it's 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 kind of the second time we've gone through this in short order, where there's just major shakeups of you know what is the largest healthcare system in the country, and if not the world, and you can't just keep doing that. We can't we can't put in a leadership team and then just dissolve it, you know, six months a year later. You know, bring in another one, dissolve it six months a year later. Because the reality is, is that you know, veterans at the end of the day are, are the ones that are suffering. When when you know, we know VA is broken. There are a number of you know components with regards to the VA that is broken. We also know America's private healthcare system is broken, right? Yeah, I mean, we have some of the worst healthcare outcomes in, in, in the modern world, you know, if we look at our healthcare system, it's certainly no gold, you know golden grail that we should be pointing at, um, you know, in terms of, you know, healthcare outcomes. Now, with that said, we got to get to work. And if if we don't put in a leadership team that, you know, can make that happen... Uh, if we don't come up with policies and bring, you know, all the players to the table and say, hey, how do we come up with the best outcomes for veterans? Everybody, if everybody's in this for the right reason, and if the right reason is best health care outcomes for veterans, then we should all be able to get in a room and, and start, you know, compromising in terms of how do we get to that.
1: Right. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is veterans need proper health care. All right. We're going to move on to something that you made fun of me because there's involved with a guy's name that you said was the name of a beer, and I'm not much of a beer guy, so I had to ask, but I'm going to impress you now. His name is Jake Leinenkugel. You got it. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) And he led a federal commission called Cover, which the White House announced Tuesday. What is Cover? Cover.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm sure it's an acronym. Um, I don't know what, you know, <laughs> five or six There's things.
1: so many acronyms. Yeah, so, yeah.
2: But the crux of, of the cover commission was, was this, and this was an effort that was spearheaded by uh, Representative Gus Bilirakis out of Florida. He's the vice chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Great guy, second generation congressman. His father was actually the Congressman Bilirakis before him. Um, so if you've ever seen a... Uh, uh, what's the Eddie Murphy movie where where the guy runs on the same name? And then his, his slogan is the the name, you know, the distinguished gentleman. <laughs> yes. So, but in this case, you know, it was his son. We've seen that before. Duncan Hunter's father was, you know, the congressman before him. Uh, anyways, getting off on the side. So this effort was spearheaded by Gus Bilirakis, vice chair of the, the House Veterans Affairs Committee. And really what he was looking at was he was starting to see that there were a number of uh, mental health care uh, you know, solutions that seem to be working better than what we would call traditional mental health care approach, which is, you know, a veteran comes in, he meets with, uh, you know, somebody at the VA, the, the doctor essentially tells, you know, the veteran what's wrong with them. They have, you know, three, for the most part about uh, three, um, uh, you know, treatments that they, they, they prefer, um, all that have Kind of clinically been proven to not be very effective. You know, if none of those work, um, then we'll we'll sprinkle some psychotropics on top. All of which, you know, or many of which have suicide as a side effect. So, you know, traditional mental health care is broken. Yes, that's, that's a fact. Congress realizes that you know traditional mental health care, which by the way, we're spending eight billion dollars a year and we keep increasing that funding doesn't work but we keep increasing the funding yeah just throw money at the problem it'll go away uh, eventually uh, well and that's that's been you know that's been congress's approach which has been you know it must be that we need more of the same it must be that we need more of the same because if if you know and that that, and that veterans aren't seeing these clinicians and if they saw these clinicians you know then then there would be better outcomes the facts are, you know, it's something to the tune of like 15% of veterans who, you know, participate in, in VA, traditional mental health care, stick around for any significant period of time. The dropout rate is absolutely absurd. Um, you know, but we're going to keep throwing more money at it, $8 billion a year. The uh, facts are, you know, th- we, we know it's not working. And there are a number of organizations out there who know it's not working and they're trying to do things to help these veterans uh, look at you know mental health care from maybe a different angle uh, I, I personally believe there are some that are far better than others in terms of where they're at the research they've done the outcomes that they can prove that they're having in terms of being cost effective um, having high quality health care outcomes um, and most importantly lasting effects right that they can prove that what they're doing is um, making a difference particularly over a period of time and and he, hey here's a kicker instead of just you know, reducing symptoms, how about we actually make these people better off than they ever were in the beginning? How about we help them try to get to their best self? So I'm slightly biased on this, but I think Boulder Crest retreat is kind of the gold standard in terms of, you know, if, if my brother was suffering from, and I should say my brother's people who I've served with, you know, if I have uh, somebody that I know who's suffering, that's who I refer them to because I think that they are bar on uh, the gold standard in this 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 field, but the hope of this commission is 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 the idea of I think two things. One is they're going to take a hard look. I hope at is you know our traditional mental health care system as we are using it for veterans right now uh, being effective. Um, you know, and I, I hope they don't spend a lot of time or money on that. Yeah, <laughs> because quite obviously it's not <laughs> right. Right, because I I I think the the answer is clear. Um, you know, and in, in fact, we have, you know, some quotes in here, uh, you know, from Lining Kugel saying, uh, Dick Lining and Kugel, and he was actually the Lining Kugel that ran Lining Kugel Beer Company. Now his brother runs it. Um, you know, they're, they're both veterans. Um, I think they're both veterans. I know Dick Lining Kugel is, um, you know, but the first step is contacting and surveying as many veterans that use the VA and even those 14 million uh, that do not. Uh, Lining Kugel said, and he said, "Is there is there new care or alternative treatment? I think the answer is yes. Uh, so you know, completely with him there. Uh, again, the hope is is that they they take a hard look at how you know, frankly, ineffective VA mental health care is, and then I think they, you know, I hope uh, that they take a hard look at organizations that are out there like Boulder Crest Retreat who have spent you know millions of dollars." Researching their outcomes and being able to show definitively that they're having incredible outcomes, changing lives for veterans and helping them, you know, not only mitigate uh, symptoms, because that's, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's not the best end goal, but helping them become their best self and realize how they can take those things that happen to them, right? Those, those traumatic events, whatever they may be, and use them as fuel. To become their best self, so you know, kudos to 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 Lining Kugel and his team. They have a a really tough uh, challenge ahead of them. I'm really excited to see that this is coming together, and you know, really hopeful that it actually leads to some significant change in thinking in terms of how we are currently approaching mental health care. And frankly, we're we're approaching it not dissimilarly to how we provide health care in the private sector, which is very much you know, it's only, it's almost like fee for service care, right? It's like, what are your specific symptoms? How do I fix them? You know, and 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 then once we fix them, you kind of move on. You know, it might be, you know, yeah, you bum knees. Well, let's fix your knees, but we're not going to talk about the fact that maybe you're thirty pounds overweight, and then that's the actual problem. You know, hitting the bum knee. But if you if you got on the treadmill and started working out a little bit, ate a little bit better, you probably wouldn't have those problems. You know, so we need to have a better whole health approach to mental health care as well. Not just be focused on, you know, oh, you're depressed. Well, here's a pill that will fix that for the day, you know, might have suicide as a side effect. Hey, nah. you, know, you know, we'll keep you from being suicidal by giving you something with a suicide as a side effect. Right, but better better yet, how do we, you know, focus on, hey, here's what's causing that depression in the first place, you know, take that issue out, look at, look at it, you know, drop it out of your rucksack because you don't want to carry that on your bag anymore or on your back anymore. And, and how do we strive forward, move forward, and, and help you become your best you? All right.
1: Now, we're going to move on to something
2: else. Uh, there is a new branch of Veteran Affairs Operations. What is this? Well, they, they, want, they want a new one. This, <laughs> so the House Veterans Affairs Committee uh, recently, or actually the, the United States House of Representatives, so the inter- entire Congress uh, passed a bill. Um, that was initially uh, introduced by, uh, I believe it was Brad Wenstrup initially, um, when he was uh, chair of the House Veterans Affairs Economic Opportunity Committee. I think somebody else might have picked the bill up since then. But long story short, this has been something that House Republicans uh, in the Veterans Affairs Committee have been pushing for for quite a period of time. Um, one, one staffer in particular has done a lot of work on this, John Clark. Um, and in terms of what they're really trying to achieve here is there. There are a number of veterans' employment programs in different places. Uh, right now, we're spending I think it's well over 150 million dollars a year through um, uh, uh, work, WIA funding, Workforce Investment Act uh, that goes to the the depart through the Department of Labor and out to the states. Uh, you know, when you were getting out of the service, Jake, you probably remember, you know being pushed to like your state workforce agency, yep. you know, so there's, there's probably, what is it like Texas employment commission or something, something like, like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, these, these organizations are run by the state. They're, they're generally, I'm from Utah. So we have Utah workforce employment agency or something to that effect. Um, you can generally find them all over the state, you know, maybe they're in the County building, you know, in the cities, maybe they're in numerous locations. Long story short, um to the tune of probably you know 150 175 million dollars in funding is provided uh to these agencies to essentially hire veteran um to hire veterans actually directly um but then these veterans are supposed to help other veterans find employment uh, there's a lot of um I don't know if controversy is the right word around <laughs> the, the 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 program I think effectiveness has always been a huge concern. Um, you know, v- veterans are you know smart people, and you know they're hired to help other people find jobs. And inevitably, and often, what happens is they find a better job themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we train them how to find jobs, and you know they they go and find a, a better job, and then you know then we bring in somebody behind them, and you know. So long story short, they they often don't stick around for a long period of time. The effectiveness of the program is. Kind of in question, um, it's not, you know, and and I might get hit for this, but you know, it's never really appeared, and this is over numerous administrations. You know, the 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 priority of the Department of Labor in terms of this program has, I'd say, waxed and waned. Um, you know, sometimes it's been a high priority, sometimes it's been not as high of a priority. Um, and then if you go over to the VA, we have. You know, I I don't want to say the same services, but in some capacity, we have similar services. So we have uh, what are called VA employment coordinators who operate under the uh, vocational rehabilitation and employment program. Uh, There's similarly, they're helping veterans, you know, try to find employment, vocational rehabilitation and employment as a whole program is, you know, trying to help veterans get educated and, and get quality, meaningful jobs. Um, and then we have things like the post 9 eleven GI bill, right? where we're spending billions of dollars every year trying to help veterans get jobs. So long that's that's a long story to say, you know, part of the intent here um, is to look at all those programs that are out there that are helping uh, veterans get employed and consider putting them under one umbrella, if you will. Now, Uh, You've had a lot of agency turf battles, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty tough to walk into, you know, these are pretty reasonably staffed, you know, each one of these agencies are pretty, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not mom and pop shops. I mean, we're talking about some big bucks and big staffs here, um, you know, and, 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 the notion of, you know, pulling them all together and, you know, who's in charge and, you know, what does that mean for the program? And, you know, what are some of the things that we can expect as a result of this, all of those things kind of come into play, and it ends up being, you know, somewhat uh, policy-oriented. You know, is this the right move? To you know, the goal here should be: is this the right move for veterans? Is it going to help more veterans get quality employment in a timely manner? I mean, that's that would be the mission I would throw on the wall in terms of, you know, is this the right policy decision? Uh, but you also end up with political situations, right, which is, you know, is this is, uh, is this is this a good thing for me or the shop or the agency or, you know, how's this going to, you know, potentially negatively affect this state or that state or, you know, is this going to be seen as, you know, pro-Democrat or pro-Republican? And I, I'm not answering any of those questions. I'm just kind of playing out, you know, some, right. of the, some of the impacts in terms of how this is looked at. Long story short— um, That's
1: the fourth time you said that.
2: Yeah. Long story short is, <laughs> uh, you know, the the administration and, and previous administrations as well, so I don't think it's really a partisan thing, uh, have, have, have not really supported this idea. Um, one of the big arguments, particularly under VA, is if you look at where post-9-11 GI bill is and vocational rehabilitation and employment, uh, they're actually under— um, uh, the Office of um, uh, Veterans Benefits Administration. Well, the the whale in the room on that is really uh, disability compensation. I mean, that's really where that you know, administration's focus is, and, and GI Bill and VRE have always kind of been second fiddle to that. So by breaking this out, it allows them to have a, a higher level of visibility, authority influence etc so it'll it'll be interesting to see how this uh, rolls forward and if the the senate agrees with this approach
1: okay justin brown from hill vets a lot of good information thanks for stopping by man you bet thanks for having us you're listening to the morning briefing we shall return tomorrow stay tuned later on great seat.
0: helping military veterans stay connected we make it easy we're cbs radio's connectingvets.com com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the morning briefing. I'm super producer JQ sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is, well, he's off doing something, and you're just gonna have to wait and find out exactly what that is. I'm kidding, he's doing fantastic stuff for veterans here at connectingvets.com and since we're on the subject make sure you visit the website connectingvets.com your one-stop shop for all things military and veteran related and make sure you follow us on social media we are at connecting vets on facebook youtube instagram and twitter follow us you'll get the latest and greatest happenings in the veteran sphere you'll know exactly when things pop off because we stay on top of that stuff because everyone here at ConnectInvest.com knows what it's like to put the uniform on and take it off for the last time. We have Air Force vet. No, we don't have any Air Force veterans. I'm sorry. We have Army vets. We have Marine Corps vets. We have Navy vets. And we even have an active National Guardsman. So we're staying on top of that stuff because we care about you because we care about ourselves. It's that whole circle of life thing that goes on. So if you are a military member or a veteran, you have most likely heard of the USO. And what you might only know about the USO is, oh, those people at airports that let me eat crackers and cookies while I'm waiting for my flight. But the truth is, the USO offers so much more for service members and transitioning veterans. And I'm joined by someone from that organization that's going to talk about some of the great programs they have. I'm joined by Maura Gondek. She is the Program Supervisor for Transition at the USO Metropolitan Washington Baltimore area. Maura, how are you doing today? I'm great, Jake. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Now, before we get started, I understand you are not a veteran yourself, but you are a military spouse,
3: correct? Correct, yes. My husband's been um, active duty Army for about 26 years now.
1: Oh, wow. So uh, tell me a little bit about your experience as a military spouse, like some of the some of the hardships you've had to go through or some of the uh, the benefits and things like that.
3: Well, the benefits are that we've um, had the opportunity to live in some great locations. We've been fortunate enough to be in Hawaii and Germany and seen other parts of our country as well. Um, Some of the hardships as a military spouse that many of us know is having to give up a career and put our careers on the back burner um, as our service member is transferred around the country and around the world. So that's been challenging, but at the same time, it's been very rewarding. I got to be a stay-at-home parent for about 11 years before I re-entered the workforce, so I can't complain. And now I work for USO Metro, and it's great.
1: Okay, so how did you come to work at the USO?
3: Uh, I had just decided it was time to re-enter the workforce and on was trying to network and on various Um, social media pages, as well as looking online for employment. And in one of the Facebook groups I'm in, a colleague posted, a now colleague posted that she worked for the USO. Um, They were hiring, they like to hire military spouses. I had done workforce development in my previous life um, when we were stationed at Fort Benning. And so when I saw the job posting for program supervisor for Project Next Step, overseeing our transition education programs recruiting participants and managing the programs it just seemed like a perfect fit
1: okay so now you are the program supervisor and you look over project next step now what exactly is project next step (laughs)
3: So we offer transitional education programs for service members and active duty spouses. The service member needs to be within 12 months of transitioning from active duty, whether it's 12 months before and up to 12 months afterwards. We also understand if you're a member of the WTU that your uh, date of transition is kind of fluid. So we take that into account if you apply. We offer three programs at this point. We have a Cisco Certified Network Associate in Routing and Switching. We have Project Management professional, and we have a certified information system security professional. All of these programs are taught at the Warrior and Family Center at Fort Belvoir. We are hoping to expand up to Bethesda in the near future. Um, All of our classes have an application process. We offer them about two times a year. We seat between 20 and 25 individuals per class.
1: Okay, so, and I understand uh, the way we got hooked up with together is Mm -hmm. that uh, there is a program coming up actually tomorrow called Franchise Ownership. Is it for me? Can you tell me about that?
3: Right, so we've also, we've decided to expand and start to tr- um, offer monthly seminars that we think would be useful for our service members and their families as well. So our first one that we're kicking off is franchise ownership. Is it for me? Um, Heather Rosen with FranNet will be our facilitator. She's going to go over what it looks like to own a franchise, how to decide which franchise to go with. Do you go with your heart or do you go with your head? Which ones are more profitable than others? What is successful in the D.C. area as well as other areas? Because we realize not everybody is going to stay in the D.C. metro area. So this is a first. Um, this is a this is the kickoff for us. This is the first one that we're doing and we're offering, and uh, it's at 6:30 tomorrow night, August 1st. And if people want to register, we have about 25 spots um, still left and available. They can email me at Gondeck at usometro.org and i can send them the link to register it's also on our events page on our facebook at metro.uso.org slash programs you can find it under there as well okay
1: so uh, the franchising exactly what does that mean like does that entail because to me when i hear franchise i think of restaurants like chili's or it, outback steakhouse or something so what exactly it, does it mean by franchising
3: it could be a restaurant, but it could also be some other sort of small business, like a Hallmark store, or um, there are some that do um, contracts for home repair. So it is kind of a wide variety, of, but a franchise small business that you are not um, doing the creating it from the ground up that you are buying into an already established system and then running your own location of that. So there's a lot of possibility in the franchise world. And we understand we get a lot of interest from our service members asking if we have any information on it. So we thought we would go ahead and offer this program.
1: Okay. Now, um, so what kind of things will be discussed at this briefing? Like what are you going to be going over?
3: we're going to be discussing what to look for in a franchise, how to make that decision, um, how do you find the good franchises, which franchises have succeeded in the D.C. metro area, what are the current hot franchises or fastest growing industry sectors, um, how can you work full-time and have a franchise at the same time, and how to know if you're suited for franchising and which ones might work best for you. Okay. Do Do you know off the top of your head what are some of the more hot franchises these days? I don't, but if you register tomorrow and come tomorrow evening, we'll find out together.
1: That's that's a very slick plug. I like that. That's very good. <laughs> uh, okay, let's back up a little bit. I want to ask, um, the USO, I mean, I know that, like I said, a lot of people only know the USO as that spot in the airport where I can relax. Right. Um, how did the USO get involved in such these complex projects? Do you know that?
3: Well, so we're part. with USO Metro, and we are a charter under USO Inc., and we noticed in our region that we have, and across the country, we have service members who have a wealth of knowledge, skills, and experience, but they needed to get that information and those skills and experience transferred to civilian-friendly terms to help obtain certifications. We know that contractors and different employers, especially in this area, are looking for certain certifications. They're looking for project management. They're looking for CISSP. They're also looking for individuals with security clearances. So service members already have the clearance. They might not have that certification, but they have the experience. And so we decided to go ahead and create this programming that provided the opportunity to um, take our courses, prepare for that certification exam, and make that individual more marketable in their civilian life post-military.
1: Well, we always appreciate you, and we appreciate people helping veterans transition, because that could be a hard thing. That To me, that was almost the hardest part about being in the military. I mean, yeah, I deployed to Iraq, and I went through NTC and all the other usual hardships of being in the Army, but when it came time to transition, that time was really scary, because I I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. I didn't know if there'd be things available to me, and I really wish I had a program like Next Step that could have helped me, sort of walk me through the process.
3: Absolutely, I mean, we think it's beneficial, not just for that educational component, but also, you know, as a member of the military, you're told who you're gonna work for, you're told what you're gonna do in your job, you know, and we know that that transition is scary. So in addition, we work on networking, um, we can offer help with resumes. There's also a program through USO called the Pathfinder Program, and they can help um, those transitioning service members and the spouse at any time in the career with resumes connections with education connections with employment um, connections with for housing and benefits and whatnot so there are a lot of great opportunities available through uso
1: okay what do you think is the most common issue that people come to you like when people come to USO and say hey i need some help with something what do you think is the most common issue that people talk about
3: for me, it is those education components. It is I need to get into a CISSP class so I can get certified or a PMP class to get certified. And then the other is just connections for employment um, you know, or help with a resume. Those are, those are the biggest things that I'm seeing um, in my position.
1: Okay. So let's go over some of these programs. Uh, the CCNA, the Cisco Certified Network Associate, exactly what is that?
3: So it's, a, it's an eight-week class. Um, it's really for entry-level network engineers that helps mac- maximize the investment in foundational networking knowledge and increases the value of, um, of the employer's network. There's a lot of hands-on in that program, um, so it is very beneficial and it can be, I refer to CCNAs, it can be a career changer. You don't have to have a lot of experience in it because there is a lot of hands-on um, practicum experience in the class. So, if you're a gamer and you just you you've networked your systems together, this is a great class for you.
1: Oh wow! See that that that's good advertising there. Hey, you want to game? You're here. Here, have a job. You know, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, the project management professional. What is that?
3: So, project management. It's really designed for those. Um, who already have some project management experience. It prepares participants for the comprehensive certification exam through some hands-on training and group work that they do in the class. And it's been structured specifically to the needs of the military audience. Our instructor is a veteran, so he can help make the information relatable to our service members. And we know our service members have a lot of project management experience. If you've planned an inspection, that's considered a project. Um, If you've, you know, been deployed and you've um, planned missions and whatnot. Again, project management. So instructors also designate class time to help participants in documenting their previous project management experience for the certification exam application.
1: See, that's one of those things that service members don't really think about that they have experience in, because in the military, that's that's just second-hand knowledge. Oh yeah, I got to plan a barrack inspection. I got to plan a layout. I got to do this.
3: Exactly. But if it has a start date and an end date and certain steps in between, it's a project and you can count that and document that along the way. So for your certification, if you sit for a full certification exam, you have to have 4,500 hours of experience before they will accept you to sit for that certification. We help you document some of those hours.
1: That's incredible. All right, uh, the last one: Certified Information System Security Professional. That's a that's a mouthful. What exactly it, is that?
3: It is a mouthful. So that's designed for those that have experience in the cybersecurity arena. It's a globally recognized certification in the field of IT security. It's a comprehensive program, and it teaches information system security through a combination of class and virtual classroom methods. Um, it is kind of a top notch. It's a very hard certification um, to obtain, but we provide that instruction and, again, that foundation to help make sense of the, the process and to help make sense of that um, certification exam. But you do, again, uh, PMP and CISSP, you have to have experience in those arenas um, to really be able to keep up with the class because they're both about a six-week class.
1: Right. this That's another thing that the service members really excel at is this accelerated classroom things. because right. You you look at, like, NCO school or A
3: school, and it's very it, – you
1: know, you learn a whole lot in not a lot of time. In a short
3: time, right. And so our classes are taught in the evenings. In general, they're taught in the evenings from 6 to 9 p.m. And then CCNA and PMP, we also meet on Saturday mornings from 8 until noon. Um, so, again, you're not having to take time out of your duty day. Um, you can do it after your duty day ends.
1: Okay. So
3: tell me, are these programs specific to the metro area or they are? are, they, are? they are. Project Next Step is, is specific to the to the uh, national capital region. Yes, sir. Well,
1: that's because it sounds like this is the kind of thing that would catch on that other USOs would be doing. So that's very interesting to hear that it's just y'all for now.
3: Yes, it is. There is definitely interest from other USOs, but right now, we are the, we've piloted it, we developed it, and um, we're running it ourselves.
1: Okay, so what other kind of services does the USO offer aside from just Project Next Step? Like, you may not be an expert, but what kind of things do you, y'all offer?
3: We offer a lot of um, rest and relaxation. You can come into our centers, you can always grab a snack. We have here at USO Metro, we have Fall Fest, so that's a day in the fall where you can come in. We'll have a pumpkin patch and face painting for kids in a bounce house, and you'll also meet with other community resources. Um, we have Beyond the Base, and that takes opportun- it's an opportunity for service members and family members to explore um, our community and the, and the area around us. They might be on the base. They might go to um, an escape room one night, or they might go do laser tag one night. We offer Bingo Monthly. For families, we also offer bingo monthly for our WTU participants. We have a monthly um, Yum Lunch, which is your USO meal. Um, We have a monthly lunch for active duty, and then quarterly, we have a dinner for uh, active duty and their families. We have movies on the lawn. We do here at USO Metro and a lot of USOs, we have. supermarket sweeps once a month where we have food that is donated by the National Capital Area Food Bank. And you can come to our warehouse and see what's been donated. There's always like carrots and potatoes and celery and sometimes lettuce, but then there's other bakery items that are donated and other um, perishable goods, fruits and vegetables and whatnot. So that's a real budget reliever for our families, but they can come in, just show an ID and Our volunteers really run it and you just go through the line and they determine you know you can have one loaf of bread or two of this or three of that or whatnot so that's a real budget reliever for our families as well
1: okay now to remind myself uh this isn't something i participate in this is active duty only
3: it's active duty yes
1: okay well i don't need your programs anyway (laughs) (laughs) Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's good to know because a lot of veterans have friends and family that are still in the service. So it's good to be able to get this word out. And, you know, hey, the USO is, like I said, more than just the airport. Lots of really Absolutely. cool stuff y'all got.
3: And like I said, vet our veterans are welcome to come into our centers, have a snack, hang out for a bit. But unfortunately, um, for our general programs it is for active duty service members. Project next step is if you're eligible up to 12 months after transitioning from active duty service. And that's the same for the Pathfinder program as well.
1: Okay. Uh,
3: So um, so we have the... So the the franchise is August 1st, and then we'll be running the next class that we're offering through Project through Project Next Step is a Cisco certification, and that should start um, mid September. And our application process should start uh, August 13th. So if somebody wants to email me, I can send them. I can put them on the interest list, and they would get a link directly from me when the application process opens.
1: Okay. So let's talk about this. Uh, If people want to learn more about what the USO in the metropolitan area is doing for service members, where do they go?
3: They can go to our website, which is metro.uso.org. They can uh, click on a location under that. They could click on for Fort Belvoir or for Bethesda or uh, Fort Meade and see what programs are offered at each center.
1: Okay. And uh, what's the website?
3: Metro.uso.org.
1: You're listening to the morning briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. ConnectingVets every day. I want to thank Maura Gondek for her interview about the USO. But when, right now, I am joined by someone who I don't know if he's a friend or a colleague, or it's Philip J. Briggs. I have no idea if his middle initial is J. It just sounded right. Phil, how's it going, man?
0: What's up, Jake? good job and uh, you know I'd like to think we're friends and colleagues but you know it depends who you ask in this building
1: yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so you are the podcast guru here at connectivest.com on top of being just a general reporter and being generally awesome so uh you. you run our vet story podcast what sort of stuff do you got
0: coming up for us i tell you what this week Right now, in the player deck, is something you have to hit click, you have to listen, and you have to subscribe to. Uh, It's a story of the world's most dangerous bar.
1: Really? So so I would assume somewhere in like Detroit or something.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, I don't know how I met this guy, and we had beers last fall when he first told me this story, but long story short, he's a British Special Forces guy, former British Special Forces guy, uh, former paratrooper, and he'd been working in Iraq... 2005, 2006, and I guess he went back as kind of like a consultant, you know, like a lot of our spec war guys do. Somewhere along the lines, he managed to run into the guy with the import duty rights for the country of Iraq for liquor.
1: Really? I assume that stuff's really kind of held on tightly in Iraq. Super hard to get.
0: Almost nowhere could it be found about this time. And in his own words, James Thornett told me, we were looking for a place to get a proper drink. (laughs) Great,
1: that's my... Yeah,
0: very, very good accent. uh, That's my British accent. But he couldn't find a proper drink, so he ends up meeting this guy, and the story of the Baghdad Country Club was born. And he basically founded this bar, and over some beers and about an hour and a half, he told me at great length what it took to, one, meet this guy in a war zone, two, get these truckloads of liquor, Smuggled into Baghdad and three, find a location to set up a legit bar. And by like, I want to say 2007, he literally had a place called the Baghdad Country Club up and running with a granite bar and actual tables at the patio. I mean, it was like Casablanca recreated, <laughs> you know, modern G-Watt style. Yeah. Is the place still running? No. Uh-uh. Oh, and okay. that's actually all within the story. Eventually it got shut down and eventually he had to smuggle his way out of Iraq Um, He had to, well, he had to leave Iraq and then he actually had to smuggle back in to get some of his staff safely out. Um, It's such a cool modern Casablanca war story. But, I mean, the guys lived through and risked kidnapping, beheading in Fallujah, living in the jungles of Sierra Leone and making it past the Taliban twice in Afghanistan. I mean, just you you can't even make this up. And um, some of my favorite parts of the podcast are, one, the meeting with the guy. Who had the duty free license. Two, when he first picked up his shipment, he ended up finding out it was like a tractor trailer truck full of booze. <laughs> he thought he was gonna get a couple cases. He got like a whole truckload. Um, some of the some of the gnat sound from what was called the deadliest road at, in in the world at the time. It was a road called Route Irish. Yeah, Route Irish, yeah. I'm well aware well aware of Route Irish. I, was, I gotta tell you, you're a tanker. Um, I got NAT sound from that road from a firefight that was going on. And it's eerie and it's haunting to hear the sounds of gunfire and all this stuff and cars, you know, the dinging of the car door left open, ding, 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 and then the bullets whizzing across the hood of this car. Um, it, it, it's a gripping story, and I was just so pleased that he was able to share it with me. That's in the podcast. Um, it's being turned into a movie. And really? you never guess who's going to play one of the characters in it.
1: Uh, let's see. It's a British guy, so Jason Statham? No. Sean Connery.
0: <laughs> very, very apropos. But no, think more like action hero American.
1: Uh, no, not The Rock.
0: Oh, a good casting. No, maybe they'll add him into it too. No, Robert Downey Jr. There's an interesting story on how James Thornett gets this story into screenplay form and gets it across some people's desks and, and, and rumor has it that Robert Downey Jr. has shown interest in the project. I've seen pictures of James with Robert. So, um, wow, I don't know what all's going to go down in the future, but you will be no, know- you will know the name Baghdad Country Club one day when it's a movie.
1: But and, you're going to hear um, it first here at connectingvets.com. Yeah,
0: y- yeah, you'll hear the whole story on the Vet Story podcast. Again, you can find it at connectingvets.com, and uh, there's a bunch of really cool vet stories in the player right now, and every week we make a new one. Um, I'm working on one that's kind of interesting for this week too.
1: Oh, really? Can you give us a little tint, a little teaser preview? I'll only give you two words: Bigfoot erotica. Well, now you have my attention. <laughs> I'm telling you, how, how did you how did you find out what I'm looking for on my computer? How did you find out? Who told you? <laughs> I mean, no, no, not Bigfoot. And it's it's Nessie I'm looking at, not Bigfoot. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what's that rule? Like, for everything out there? Yeah, rule rule 34. If it exists, there is porn of it. No exceptions.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, this isn't necessarily porn, but it's another veteran crossover to one of the most topical stories of the week, and uh, I'm hopefully going to get that interview a little bit later today, but uh, whether it's the Baghdad Country Club, whether it's the airmen that went from the Air Force to singing with the um, Temptations... um, whether it's the guy that wrote the best-selling book, Echo and Ramadi, Green Beret that lost his legs that now surfs. I mean, Vet Stories, the the player has really, in the last 12 weeks, got some epic, epic stories. and I love getting these vets in the studio and helping produce their lives because, uh, man, it, it just sounds so good. And we appreciate you doing that. Phil Briggs, thanks so much
1: for popping in here and talking to me for a few minutes. And once again, if you want to hear more of those vet stories, you got to go to connectingvets.com, your one stop shop for all things veteran and military related. And don't forget to follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm JQ, Super Producer, and I want to thank you for hanging out today. Have a safe day and make sure you tune in tomorrow for even more epic connectingvets.com content.
0: We'll see you then later. Right on.